Today's episode is brought to you by The Gallery. Based out of New York, The Gallery is a curated collection of photographs from around the world. While we're all unable to travel, this is a great way to bring a piece of the world to you. All prints are made from 100% recycled aluminum, giving your wall that gallery finish. Right now, The Gallery is offering our listeners 15% off their purchase by using the code 15OFF. That's 15OFF. Go to thegallery.com, that's the G-A-L-R-Y.com, so your wall will never be boring again. Your host, Greg Rotersheimer, is now a designated financial coach. If your financial situation is causing you stress because of debt, budgeting, or saving for retirement, and anything in between, contact me to discuss how I can coach you to financial success. Email me at greg at suburbanfolk.com or call me at 804 804- Five nine two one eight seven one for a fifteen minute free consultation to get started with your plan. Health, travel, finance, parenting, and home improvement. This is the Suburban Folk Podcast. Two hundred fifty dollars a month into my child's five twenty nine from the month that they start kindergarten, I should be able to pay for eighty percent of my child's college. Because I don't trust that most people will eat their vegetables, right. so usually our kind of standard is three servings of vegetables per meal. You take something like a, a two by six and you cut it with a circular saw. That's like a superpower. Those middle school years are not as fun, but at that age, they're still willing to talk to you. Welcome to the Suburban Folk Podcast. I'm your host, Greg. Today's topic is about as important and urgent as a topic that I can think of. From the core topics we cover, this is around parenting, but more specifically, it's regarding the reopening of schools. Everybody in the country and the world, of course, has been affected by COVID in many, many ways. And for those of us with kids, the reopening of schools has been something that even for those of us that try to avoid politics, it maybe has brought politics a little bit into our homes and something we can't avoid. And of course, we're very passionate about it because it's our families that we're talking about. Now, usually I start the show by introducing my guest, but I wanted to give a little bit of information about where my experience has been with the potential reopening of schools versus virtual school. My wife and I have a rising kindergartner, and we moved to the house that we're in because we definitely were encouraged by the reputation of the schools and... The elementary school has an excellent reputation in our area. So our first experience with potential closings was, of course, in March when everything had to shut down because of COVID. And we're in the beginning stages. Nobody knew a lot of information. It was absolutely the safest and correct thing to do. The only way that affected us is we had to postpone the registration for kindergarten And that meant he didn't get to do the practice bus ride or walk around the schools. Worse things have happened, certainly. Of course, as the summer has gone along, I think most people were hoping maybe the summer would be a time that things would start to go away a little bit. We would see less cases. That has not been the case nearly everywhere. I won't say that for the entire country because I don't know all of the details there. But certainly in Richmond, Virginia, we didn't completely taper off like a lot of areas were hoping for. So 
we started to have the virtual town halls introducing us to the public school system and getting ready for kindergarten. The first options that we heard were 50% capacity, likely that it would be two days a week in school and three days a week at home with some virtual learning or virtual availability for our kindergartners. Admittedly, our first issue came where we didn't see a distinction between kindergartners and all the way up through the high schoolers, which the data that we had been looking at seemed to suggest that the younger children had less of a chance of getting sick. And there have, of course, even been some studies that would suggest that they couldn't even pass it along. And of course, just like all research that's gone on, it's been pretty fluid and there is a lot of information out there to get. Right before an ultimate decision was to be made, we did hear some rumblings that the school year would start completely virtually. And for what we knew in the community, as well as the research that we had done, we really felt like all virtual school for our rising kindergartner wouldn't be the right choice for us. So last minute, we went ahead and interviewed at some private schools, and the vote did officially come in. And this is Chesterfield County, for those that are familiar with Richmond. For those that are not, this is a neighboring county of Richmond City. Once that decision was made, we did go ahead and pull the trigger to do private school. Just like everybody going through these decisions, it will remain to be seen how well that works for us. We feel pretty confident in the uh, way that the plan has been rolled out for the school that we did ultimately enroll in. And that's where we're at at this point. As I'm speaking on August the 7th, there's some more decisions to be made in the state of Virginia, as well as, again, nationally uh, across all of the states. So that is what my experience has been with the school reopenings, we definitely are doing what we can for face-to-face instruction for our rising kindergartner. And as we were going through this process, I was lucky enough to get in touch with Katherine Haynes, and she is the guest today. And she is on the Chesterfield County School Board and is going to walk us through what her experience has been throughout COVID and then leading up to the first meeting that the decision was to go virtual uh, and then also what the current updates are, who all the different entities are that, that you work with to make certain decisions, to make sure that metrics are in place and making sure that safety is of the utmost importance. And then where do we go from here? So Catherine, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Greg. So now that I gave that background, let's get back to how I typically do the shows. Do you want to go ahead and give us some of your background leading up to your journey that led you to the school board? Um, Yeah, so I I think you're interested in knowing how I became a school board representative. Um, I don't think it's the typical trajectory. I had done some organizing work um, in the school district just as kind of a PTA mom and working with my neighbors. And there were kind of a, a core group of us. We sort of unofficially called ourselves the letter writers because we would write letters to try to to bring about change in different policies. And one of those uh, moms 
asked me to run for school board. And I think my first response was, uh, can't somebody else do this? Um, because I'm, I'm just not political and did not feel prepared uh, to run a campaign. And so I actually I decided that I would ask around was going to be my first step and see if there was anybody else that would do it. <laughs> and I just asked some local PTA folks um, who were also not political, so maybe didn't know if there were, you know, in the political parties, there were people that were being pegged because um, that wasn't the, their worldview. Um, they were just PTA folks, and they had not heard of anybody that wanted to run. Um, so then I asked my family and said, so I'm being asked to run. Um, would you support me? And that meant, you know, not seeing me for long periods of time. That would meant, um, as I shared in a previous conversation that my husband would have to, uh, change his job eventually because, um, the summer before an election, things really heat up and, if you are not willing to commit, you know, 18 hours a day, um, to the campaign, then you don't want to get elected basically. Um, and my family said, yes, um, we'll support you. And so I said, okay, you know, I'm going to do this. So that sort of, that was my journey. It was very, I never thought I would end up on the school board. Um, but I do interestingly enough, you know, I forgot one step as I thought, you know, am I qualified to do this? And I do have a master's degree in urban planning and policy and um, have been involved in education policy related organizing. So, um, and also am passionate about civic engagement. Um, So I thought, you know, I I had noticed that not a lot of people go to school board meetings, not a lot of people contact their representatives. And I thought if I get on the board, I'm going to get people to get more engaged. And so I guess using that metric, I've succeeded because I've never seen such engagement from uh, Midlothian residents in, in my life. And actually even talked to someone um, that uh, works for CCPS, has worked for a long time. And I said, have you ever had an inbox as full um, you know, pre-COVID as you, you do now? And they said, no. So I think that speaks that we have a level of community engagement that we've never seen. And I find that exciting. Yeah, I would imagine it's almost drinking from a fire hose at this point. <laughs> it, it is. Every now and then, you know, someone will say, you know, you didn't get back to me. And I will say, you know, sometimes I can get, you know, a thousand emails in a day. And uh, I'm not really good with a PC because um, I've used Macs my entire life. So I'm always accidentally deleting emails. So it's really, I apologize. <laughs> it's my intention to get back to everybody Um and I'm sure I delete one or two emails accidentally. I think the common theme that we both acknowledged is politics is not necessarily the first thing that are in the front of our mind, but you sure can't avoid it these days. It feels like, unfortunately, especially when you get to the local level, maybe it's just me being a disengaged local citizen, but it's very strange to me right now to see this much banter again at the local level as we've seen especially with the school reopening so uh, maybe that it'll be nice if that level of engagement stays once we find the new normal and everybody is on the same page as far as what we're doing with schools so continuing with 
the chronological order. And of course, I'd mentioned it was March when the schools had to abruptly close. And of course, that was not just here in the Richmond area, that was nationally. What was your experience with that closure and then getting into the initial months of the summer, watching how things were going to play out? I think as a school board rep, what I was thinking during the closure is, you know, what is the first thing that I, that I need to do? And uh, reading a lot and um, watching everything that was going on um, and talking to uh, friends that have kids in public school and private school. So it was also, you know, kind of watching what private schools were doing versus what maybe public schools were doing. And I came to the realization um, that, uh, it was possible to have uh, a future shutdown. Um, like we, we couldn't, maybe not for COVID, because um, I thought, well, maybe COVID would be gone, but you know, we could have another um, pandemic, right? Like I think it is. Um, it would be wrong to say, you know, this is the first and last pandemic that we're going to experience. So I think that we, in order to be pandemic resilient, um, we're going to have to figure out how to open schools and close schools and provide instruction, um, you know, that's very rich when schools are closed. And so what I realized was that we need, we needed a one-to-one Chromebook, um, a one-to-one Chromebook ratio for our kids and we needed internet access. And that's because um, public schools have to uh, provide equal instruction to everybody. And so if you're providing uh, paper packets uh, to one group um, because they don't have a computer and you're, you know, you're providing this robust uh, online curriculum to kids that do have a computer, that that's not equal access to public school education. So I think that was kind of the first, all right, like I've, I've done all the research. I realized that, you know, you, you can provide a robust, um, learning, obviously face-to-face is definitely first choice always when possible, but it, it can be done virtually. And that means that every child has to have access to a computer. Um, and every child has to have access to, um, getting online. So and then, so obviously that meant, you know, talking with staff, finding the resources um, to make that happen, and then communicating with uh, my constituents, some of whom initially uh, were very anti-Chromebooks. And actually, to be honest, I had even talked about the wasted expense of Chromebooks on the campaign trail. <laughs> and I think they thought I had, you know, done this 180. You know, Catherine, we were on the same page. And I said, well, you know what, like, you know, the reality is uh, private schools are have been able to continue with uh, providing instruction, and it's because they were able to just buy everybody Chromebooks and get them online. So um, I, I need those tools too, right, if we're going to continue to provide an education. Not having Chromebooks and having those distributed was the thought in that in-between time that it would just be a pause uh, for the the schools up to that point? Or I guess what would have been the alternative other than, of course, having to be able to get the resources? How to get out of the pause was, was my thinking, right? Like we did have to pause in, instruction at first um, and attend to social emotional leads. You know, many, the definition of how people or how people respond to, to trauma 
um, varies based on whether or not it's perceived as an unexpected event, right? So for many people, I'd say the vast majority, um, COVID was an unexpected event. And so there was a, a lot of trauma. Um, and so you have to have that space. Um, I, on, on the other hand, um, was thinking, how do we, I think I, I didn't stay in that space as long because I think since I had been a midwife, I, I wasn't as surprised by COVID. Um, yeah, I was not shocked that we were in a global pandemic. Um, I think, uh, it had been predicted. Many people saw this coming, um, and like I said, it's not, it's not going to be the first one. So I shifted to, well, what do we, what do we do when we're in a pandemic? And yes, finding the resources so that we can provide virtual instruction um, to students. I, I want to go right to like some of the future things, because as you're talking about, hey, there's certainly there are movies and other um, documentaries and things like that, that say, hey, you know, if, if all of the elements come together, we could have this kind of issue, but I'll save the future stuff <laughs> for, for the end. Uh, and so closing out the school year, again, this is before I've really paid that much attention just because my son wasn't yet into the school system in registering. I know at some point grades were cut off, I think right around whatever the last day of the face-to-face school year was. It almost seemed like a little bit of a tapering out, if I can call that to some extent, as far as being able to make sure kids were still engaged, still doing what they needed to do. Is that an accurate description of how the end of school went? And then how did that pivot into the summer and starting to figure out what the fall might look like. So grades were cut off um, the day before we closed, right? Um, I don't I don't think it was a tapering. Um, it was a hard, whatever that date was. Was it March 10th? It seems like a long time ago. Um, and again, that's because that was when, um, you know, let's say that you're in a family that didn't have access to the internet um, and so we couldn't go into um, Canvas and do any work. They're just, uh, we knew that there were some people that would be able to continue doing the work and some that couldn't. And that's why we stopped the work at March 10th because we could not get at that point. We could not guarantee, um, that everybody could continue to access our curriculum. So, and there was this, and you know, that was something we kind of struggled with. There were some issues in that. Um, I think some teachers were, were were still um maybe the communication wasn't passed and so we we did have some teachers that were still grading after that but that's just because maybe we didn't do a good enough job communicating the importance of the why right because i think um you know it didn't make sense to some teachers right because if the all the kids in your class have access to the internet and have a chromebook you think, well, why aren't we um, continuing to grade? Why aren't we continuing to have new instruction? Um, so we maybe should have done a better job of communicating. Like this, this is why we have to stop grading, right? Making it very clear. And I think eventually we did. And if there was a delay, it's because it was the first time we've done that. Uh, yeah, my impression is, of course, nobody had a choice whether or not to pivot away from face to face and not having a lot of time to do that. Certainly there's going to be uh, Monday morning quarterbacking in figuring out what could have been done different, but you don't have the luxury of time, at least in figuring out what all of those things would have to be. And then also there was a shift over the summer at some point for some 
catch up sessions as well, correct? Yeah. Well, I guess I should quickly, because I had been doing all this um, research on uh, virtual learning um, in order to progress um, with virtual learning, you can have feedback from the teacher, right? And so that was really the big, like why we couldn't move forward. Um, because you could get an assignment, you could get on a Zoom call, or not Zoom because we were we didn't have access to Zoom. It was Google Meet, and you could work out this problem, and you know the teacher on the other end could say, you know, this is where you went wrong, and that kind of interaction um, with the teacher uh, can't happen with a paper packet, right? Um, and so because I kind of understood what was possible with virtual learning because I was diving into the research. Um, I was able to c- kind of communicate to people that didn't understand like why we had stopped new work. It's because we, you know we can't provide two different things. So then you talked about recovery of learning, knowing that we couldn't provide two different things. We then knew that we had to get right a device. I say Chromebooks because that's what Jersey uh, County Public Schools uses. Other districts use different um, devices, um, but that is our choice. So we knew that we had to provide everybody that needed a Chromebook. Uh, Chromebook and everybody that needed internet access, internet access so that everybody could access recovery of learning. And we made that happen. And we communicated when the recovery of learning Mm -hmm. emails went out. We said, if you need a a device, then please contact this person and we're going to get you a device. Once the uh, recovery learning started, that was optional, correct? Yes. Okay. And I'm just curious, what was the uh, participation rate? Was that something that was tracked? Um, it was, and I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna forget the number. I feel like it might have been fifteen thousand students. It was an enormous uh, number compared to past summers. Uh, people really took advantage of it, and that was very exciting because it, you know, I guess one of the benefits of it too would have been to work out the kinks and get better at doing virtual instruction. Because um, that was the, you know, talk about the also, why could we not, let's just say magically we had been able to to do um, what private schools had done and give everybody a Chromebook on March 11th after the closure. Um, that doesn't mean that your teachers are then prepared to offer virtual instruction, right? Like that's, that's very different. Um, so it, it took some time, a lot of plan professional development, which now I'm hearing from teachers uh, that it's been very excellent this summer. Um, so teachers are, they're kind of getting um, getting comfortable with providing virtual instruction. Whereas obviously March, April, May, I don't think that that was the case. Yeah. My impression has been those months were get something together, <laughs> whatever that something happens to be to get to the end of the school year take a little bit of a breather using air quotes when I say that (laughs) Uh, and then figure out in the summer what the plan of action is going to be. And I guess I want to add something, you know, because a little bit of a breather, I think, doesn't really um, explain what was happening. Um, And I like to point out that, you know, sometimes a mom would call me, um, you know, almost in tears uh, because she's trying to you know, do uh, the, the instruction that we did provide, right? We did provide initially some kind of more busy work and then a little bit of new work. Um, and she's trying to do her job full time, right? Um, next to her kid. And she's at her breaking point. And on those phone calls, um, in my head, I would think, wow, um, 
I certainly understood that standpoint because I was trying to do the same thing and thinking, so are our teachers. So if you can imagine, we have teachers who have children who receive um, level two special education services, right? So we have teachers who have kids that need a one-to-one aid for daily functions. And they also now have to teach online. It just, that's an, it was an incredible, um, you know, it's not that you can't do that, but it's like, it definitely took some time to figure out like how the heck, even for me, like, how do I, how do I do my job on the school board, which sometimes is 60 hours a week. And I'm the mom of four, right? And I have, my youngest has no attention span. Um, And so we needed that space to figure out like, how, how do we do this? Yeah, and it seems to me that's one of the points of tension that has absolutely come up. Again, certainly in our area, I would imagine probably with plenty of other localities that if I'm an essential worker, uh, and I've mentioned plenty of times on the show, my wife is a physician. Yeah. She has, of course, a, a bunch of nurses that work alongside her. You hear the reaction that. Yep, we're all trying to deal with it. You mentioned, you know, you're, you're having to deal with it. And people that can't uh, stay at home uh, are, are having to figure out those other accommodations and so on. And uh, the perspective is, yep, I'm dealing with it. So anybody else that's going to be deemed essential, you're going to have to deal with it too. And I'm not working for an employer that's caring about those additional accommodations for me. Have you heard similar kind of feedback as well and any thoughts as far as that tension point certainly yeah i mean i think that many of our parents um that are have figured out that work um balance um you know in their minds they expect our teachers to figure that out too um i think the difference is that we have not is a society incentivized teachers to be in their position. So I think sometimes the parents forget um, that the teacher might just say, you know what? Um, I have my master's degree. I'm a board national board certified teacher and I make 50,000 bucks. And I, you know, like I just, um, you haven't given me enough reassurance um, or it just, it's, it's not enough to make me figure this out. Right. I think um, that those of us that figure it out, um, do so because either we, you know, we love what we do and we get paid for it. Um, or, you know, in my personal case, because to be honest, I get paid $17,000 to work 60 hours a week, but I have an incredible sense of service. And, um, I think I've always my entire life been willing to make very hard sacrifices to do what is right. So I'm, my sense of duty compels me to stay in this, Um, so, you know, you have to have that, or maybe it's because you can't put food on your table or you can't, um, you can't pay your rent and that's why you're an essential worker and you're going to just do your job, but it's because you have to feed your family. Um, if you're in the situation where, um, maybe it's economically more productive for you as a teacher to stay home and homeschool your kids, um, you know, it's, it's a different, it's a different conversation. The the common ground maybe is that people have been exploring their options, let's say in whatever industry that they're in. And if I'm following you, it's that there is the very real possibility in this case with the teacher workforce that 
that would be forcing their hand to explore what their other opportunities are. So it's this is not a, you know, I think sometimes you say, well, they're not doing their job. And what I think the teachers are thinking is, do I want to still do this job, right? And I'm willing to hang in there, but just um, I need the reassurance that um, we've got your back, right? That we're providing, um, you know, a safe environment for you to return to school. Um, Like some of the practical stuff, um, like making sure that every school has hand sanitizing stations and um, we have shown on paper that we've provided masks for all staff. And, you know, a big one that I hear is people are concerned um, that, uh, you know, they're going, people are going shopping, right? And our teachers are going shopping and our teachers shop in a store in one area of our county and they notice that everybody wears a mask and then they shop in a store in another area of our county and they notice that nobody wears a mask. And so that teacher is thinking, well, what happens when I go back to the classroom? Are my kids going to wear masks? And I don't think we've given enough reassurance publicly that yes, they are going to wear a mask. Um, I still, you know, parents will say, well, it's too hard or whatever. And my argument is, um, you know, what happened to Americans can do hard things. And I think we should stop making excuses and just say, we want our kids back. And, you know, they're just going to wear masks and we're going to help them learn how to do that. I just, you know, if we talk about private schools, my friend uh, sent me the reopening plans for one of our local private schools. And they have the private school mascot and the mascot has a mask on and the mascot name, they say, you know, X mascot says wear a mask. So if private schools can do it, we can do it. And we have to do it fast so that we reassure our teachers that again, yeah, we're on this. Is some of the nimbleness, if that's a word, (laughs) that it sounds like we're talking about with getting the technology at the end of last year or having the plan and reiterating to the students about masks. Is, is that just a smaller size school and they have more autonomy and don't have as many different entities to deal with? Or is it a cost issue? It's a lot of things. I think um, certainly government is all about regulations and following guidance. So I think that um, often public schools probably think, you know, when it comes to wear a mask or not wear a mask, they're thinking um, in the governor's guidelines, do they say <laughs> wear a mask or not, right? Because that's just kind of how we think, you know, and it's important that we think that way because, you know, we have to follow SOQs. I mean, there's so many different legislative laws with minutiae that have to be followed or we don't get our funding. So it makes sense that we're thinking that way. Um, and I'm kind of like, I don't, you know, I don't care what <laughs> the regulation is. I know that to reassure our teachers we need to say that kids are going to be wearing masks. Um, so I just, yeah, I think that probably a private school, um, because they don't have to follow all of those regulations, is not thinking, wait, is it in the regulations or not? Or what, you know, they just go straight to, we know we need to reassure our workforce, kids are going to wear masks, done. Um, and then in terms of the funding, yes, it takes longer. Um, I think 
we we started pushing hard. I mean, I know I in every single meeting, given any opportunity, starting I think the week after shutdown, I very quickly figured out all right, we've got to have one to one so that we can provide new instruction. Um, and I was told that recently that by September, basically by the start of the school year, we could expect that every kid would have a Chrome. So it took from March to you know September to assure that we would have the funding to do that. It, it, it's, I think um, staff leadership often uh, talks about us being uh, a huge ship. And I actually grew up sailing. So that analogy works for me. You know, the bigger the boat that you are, the harder it is to, to turn. Um, you know, I started on a little tiny sunfish and you can turn that thing in a second. Um, but then I was on a cruise ship when I was older and I noticed that cruise ships, um, a lot harder to, to turn. For the teachers are concerned, going back just one more time to even the economics of the situation, do you have any sense for the private school teacher workforce versus the public school teacher workforce? And I, I guess I'll just say it like compensation comparisons. Yes, I do. So I actually was talking with a private school. Um, well, I even, you know, back up a little bit. Uh, I have had a number of public school teacher friends that have left for the private sector. And they have said it's because you get about $10,000 extra um, a year. So definitely for financial um, reasons. And what that also means, though, is there's a little bit more flexibility because I was recently speaking to another um, teacher in a private school right now that just quit. And she said she quit because um, they were told that uh, they were going to cut a promised raise that had been promised pre-COVID. They were going to cut benefits. And they also, for liability reasons, encouraged any teachers over 50 to go ahead and resign or retire early. So that, you know, they said, well, I think I'm going to just quit. You're not incentivizing me to stay on. So if the salary is larger than the public school salary, you have, I don't think cutting is the right thing to do during a pandemic, but at least that might, you might have that ability because you are not underpaying your teachers when you are already underpaying your teachers, um, you certainly cannot save any money by cutting your teacher's salary. Um, I mean, we we did promise a raise that we did take away. So in a sense, you can say that we, we did do that. Um, and I think that hurt our teacher morale. You know, so it's it's not, um, which I think that's the, the bigger thing to think about is that I think teachers are tired. Um, they have been underpaid for a long time we had this big rally in january pushing hard to try to find the funding to fix decompression um instead we gave them a two percent raise and then we took it away so when we look at teachers coming back into the classroom or not i think we also have to look at it from the standpoint of teachers are they're tired I should say tired of not being appreciated and economically, you know, properly compensated. Right. Talking about the efforts that need to be made to properly outfit the schools, that obviously costs money as well. And of course, I assume it's all the same 
pot <laughs> when we talk about teachers compensation we talk about the schools and so on and so forth uh what does that look like right now do you have any concerns about the amount of money that you'll have available to get the schools to where they need to be based on what's been identified for example we talked about i think it's like the hvac system was one of the ones in the board meeting that was pretty regularly pointed to masks of course you mentioned i assume there's maybe even other like the big clear plastic covers that you see when you go to the grocery store and so on how are you feeling about the funding now i'm feeling really good so uh on july 20th when we had our vote i certainly was not feeling good um a lot has happened since then and our board of supervisors um, really support um, helping schools figure this out and have promised, you know, they've basically said publicly, you know, what do you need? Um, so that's been very encouraging. Stepping back to when you also a comparison for private versus public, and you mentioned guidelines versus certain regulatory bodies, I assume, or re- just regulations. Uh, can you talk to me about who are all of those different entities that you're having to consider, you know, I guess timeline wise, we're, we're talking about those summer months and figuring out the next step. So who are all the players? Um, well, certainly the Virginia Department of Education. Um, so that's the Board of Education and then uh, the Secretary of Education. So that's on the governor's side. And um, obviously, federal um at the federal level is important as well for things like um whether or not we're going to have sols um because they can waive testing requirements right um so and then from a funding but we're good there now we're the conversation is there is the money there um so that's cares funding board of supervisors uh, general assembly um so there's a and then obviously you know the do I agree with this? No, but the buck does stop with the school board. So we are the decision makers. So, and I guess Virginia Department of Health, um, to me, you know, is also a very important player because they have the information that we need in order to put our kids back safely, right? Like schools don't have that um, we don't have that capacity. I mean, even if you think of a small rural school district, um, how are they going to know, you know, do they even have an epidemiologist on staff in their county? Probably not. They probably share one with surrounding areas. Um, so I really do think that VDH has a lot of information that schools need to open safely. And I think that kind of gets us to the meeting on the, the 20th where the school board voted for what the option would ultimately be. For the fall, can you walk me through how that meeting went from your perspective? And again, keeping in mind those different entities that have to be kept in mind leading up to that vote. Um, Well, so I have always been very passionate about getting our kids back in school. And so I think, you know, at first I was doing all the research about what all these other countries were doing. And that research helped me understand that it was definitely possible. And so I was excited and yes, we can do this. And then parents started to email me and say uh, that they weren't getting uh, the answers to some of their questions um, that would help them understand whether or not their kids would be safe. 
And those questions were things like, you know, do we have enough contact tracers and and testers? And I'm hearing that it takes 10 to 12 days to get test results. And um, when are you going to shut the schools down? And um, are you going to have a list of, you know, if you'll remember um, at a federal level, we very quickly got a list of countries that if you traveled to them, you would be quarantined. Um, you know, they said, well, what's the list of uh, areas in the United States, right? Like, it, it would make sense if, you know, a hot spot, you know, in Europe and a hot spot um, in Virginia should be treated the same way, right? Because both have the potential to increase spread. And what our parents and our teachers are thinking is, let's say, let's say you decide to fly to Arizona for a big family reunion and then you put your kid in public school, right? Like everybody's starting to think about this. And so I realized, wait a minute, you know, what is VDH doing? And so I kind of, um, well back up first, I had talked to our local health department and asked a number of, asked them a number of these questions. And what I learned is that they were really, uh, understaffed, right? Like they just, um, they have a number of jobs that they have to do, even if we don't have a pandemic, you know, that work doesn't go away. Um, you know, just like me working in the school board, I may be working 60 hours a week. I still have to feed my family. I still have to do my laundry. <laughs> like uh, The health department can't stop doing their normal work. So then, then it became a conversation with VDH and uh, how can we get our uh, local health department fully staffed and can I get all of this information um, before July 20th is what it came down to. What was the starting date when you first started reaching out to VDH? Well, to be honest, I, I just assumed all of that was happening um, because I guess I figured that if if school boards were going to make the decision to open schools, um, you know, in the background... I'm sure there was all this stuff was happening too, right? Um, that just, I don't know. So maybe I made some assumptions that I shouldn't have. Um, and, it, you know, I, I started, you know, pushing for this idea of this dashboard and public health metrics, all of that. Um, because one of the questions that I posed um, was, when do we, you know, when is it safe to open schools from a community transmission standpoint? And when is it safe to close schools? Because my concern was if you don't have the sort of bookends in place, if you just open up schools and you're not thoughtful about that and you don't have the public health guidance, then they're going to close in two weeks. And we're seeing that, right? We're seeing schools opening across the country and and they're closing very quickly. Um, so that made me realize that I couldn't vote to put kids back until I could get my questions answered. Um, and... I've seen a lot of forward movement, but I know on July 20th, um, you know, that's when, if you watch the school board meeting, our uh, public health district, the person in charge of our public health district, uh, it's not just Churchfield County, but it's like the central region, um, pointed out that in order to open schools in a pandemic, it would be very helpful if he had, I think he said, five contact tracers, um, one person whose sole responsibility would be to work uh, as the liaison between local public health and schools, right? That makes perfect sense. Um, and then the other thing that he pointed out was that, uh, and this is an issue wherever you are in the country, uh, that in some communities, 
if you have to quarantine for two weeks, uh, then you might not be able to pay your rent, right? We have families that pay their rent on a daily basis. So you go to work or you don't eat or you lose your, you know, you become homeless. And so if you've had an exposure and you know that testing and getting a positive test means you're homeless, you might just go to work if you don't have any symptoms, right? And so that actually is leading to more cases. And so Dr. Samuel's um, great advice was, you know, we need somebody on staff that will work with families so that they understand uh, that it's critical to quarantine if you've been exposed to somebody who is positive and that we will leverage community resources, you know, using local nonprofits, um, faith community to ensure that uh, your family is fed and you have a roof over your head um, and you don't lose your job or maybe maybe you do lose your job because you have a small local business that can't, you know, that needs to pay someone to work, but then they, they'll find you another job, right? Like it's this safety network that makes sure that quarantining for two weeks for the greater good, which will help keep our schools open, um, doesn't mean that you can't feed your family, right? So that's a real concern. What do you say to people that would say, I agree with that, but what about an option for those that don't want to take the risks that you're talking about and can do virtual, but hey, for us that are aware of those risks, but we still want to have our children have the choice to go in face-to-face, so we're looking for that dual option. Well, I guess I would say it's not an option for the teacher, right? So if the the child of a family whose parents are known positive but not disclosing because they will become homeless goes into school, then it's it's that teacher's at risk, right? So we have to figure out how to, um, like I said, to to have a public health campaign so that people understand how important it is so that we minimize the risk to our teachers. So it's it's not really offering it's not offering a choice to the teacher. If we, if we can't, like that family should be able to get a 15 minute rapid test (laughs) and so that they know, okay, you can't put your kid in the classroom because you know, you're positive. How did that morph from, I'll give you what my experience was in the virtual town halls and then leading up to again, the, the ultimate vote, um, I want to say it was six different options. Of course, the first one was all face-to-face and then varying degrees of 50%. I think there was a 25% time and then all virtual. And I want to say in the first few presentations, there was always a red line on all face-to-face that was saying risk management, not really signing off on this particular option. But even with the other hybrid models, I think there was a reiteration that full virtual would always be there. How did those initial presentations morph, I guess, into the final decision? Because what you're saying, like the example of for the teachers makes sense. uh, But at some point, that idea was floated um, by the the public schools, and then it kind of went away. 
Well, I guess I, I guess we probably assume that again, you know, VDH had thought about all of this and all of this was happening, right? So we thought we were just doing the education piece and that somebody else was doing the other stuff. Um, and so here's another kind of thing in terms of the, the, the vote. Um, I knew cause I had run the numbers that with the, uh, 50%, um, hybrid model, um, that if, enough kids sign up for that. And it certainly, you know, my assumption kind of from some of the parent, the school-based parent surveys, um, that we would have a number of people interested in that option, um, that we would not be able to maintain six feet of social distance between all kids at all times. And um, I knew that risk management would have to sign off on that, and I didn't have that in front of me, right? So I couldn't vote on the hybrid option if I didn't have risk management approval that we could do that, if that makes sense. And so I think there, there were a lot of assumptions um, behind those uh, presentations. And I think, you know, in, in hindsight, probably the message should have been kind of like, how do we get as many kids back is possible um, and offer the options based on that, like what is possible and going to public health and going to risk management and saying, all right, what, what is possible? Like, let's just knock it out. Which is another one of my big questions. And admittedly was a frustration when I first saw some of the plans, no breakout between the K through three, I think is the cohort for the younger children. Of course, the special needs kids, which I know you'd mentioned as well. And I think there, there was an initial breakout there. How did that end up um, not happening (laughs) that, that we had a, a separation between those levels? So I think what happened if we had come at this from a, how do we get as many kids back um, as possible, you know, starting with like, I love the phased approach, starting with our kids that are most at risk, right? Children receiving level two special education services, children receiving English language services, arguably level one um, first, and then uh, K through three, Um then we would have then we would have seen that, but we were really following the phased guidance, and so we went from phase two to phase three very quickly. So we never had time to plan for the groups mentioned in phase two, and just moved very quickly into phase three. And oh, now everybody can come back, and I think didn't stop to think. You know, if I if I would make one suggestion. Um, to uh, VDOE and VDH is that maybe there should have been for larger school districts, um, maybe we should have suggested or they should have suggested uh, that larger school districts stay in phase two, understanding that there's a huge difference between a school district, you see the difference between private and public, a school district that has 63,000 kids, which is uh, Chesterfield County or a school district that has 187,000, I think, which is Fairfax, somewhere around there, uh, is just very, very different than, um, you know, people will say, well, why can't you do what, you know, Amelia is doing? Then they have 
maybe 2000 students. It's just, it's, it's very different. So um, smaller districts can move into phase three and larger districts should stay in phase two and figure it, figure out the very complicated logistics. Um, because in hindsight, I think moving as quickly into phase three, then it was like, how the, how are we going to do this? Right. The, the sheer, that cruise ship, how are we going to turn that cruise ship? Um, and I, I do think it would have been helpful to say, um, do phase two first, <laughs> um, so that you, you get that confidence and reassure your teachers, reassure your staff, reassure your parents that you've got this and then move to phase three. As I mentioned for my story, and you know, you know where I fall in my perspective and, and what I think will be best for my rising kindergartner. And I think the other thing that I, when I talk politics, I try to look at my day-to-day experience first and say, okay, how does this fit into what my personal policy is? And for the daycares, and we had our kids out at the very beginning when, again, it was all very up in the air and we didn't have a whole lot of information. Gradually, they started to go back, you know, like one week in, one week out and so on. Uh, And uh, kudos to our daycare. it's Goddard at Robius. I want to give them a shout out because they've been excellent the, the whole way through as far as being flexible and so on is concerned. But those, of course, are the very young kids and there was no breakout or anything like that. And, um, you know, the, let's be honest, a, a, a three to five year old child is probably not strictly social distancing, you know, with, with to the letter of the law, at least anyway. So that was one of our, of course, first basis for what has been our experience and there hasn't been any major issues so far and we're not aware of any major issues that have gone on with the daycares so far otherwise. So it does make sense to us to have that separate breakout. Now you actually alluded to what one of my next questions was going to be in comparing other uh, localities that had the same decision to make, which is our neighboring counties. So Powhatan, uh, Hanover on the other side, uh, Amelia, I think pretty much all of the surrounding counties that don't touch uh, city of Richmond, let's say, have opted to start five days a week. So you mentioned that it's not necessarily apples to apples based on the number of kids that are in the schools. And obviously those are more rural areas. Again, for those that are not familiar with our area, are there other not apples to apples comparisons, or are you aware of any other considerations they had when dealing with these regulatory bodies? They're so small that, you know, a lot of them were able to, um, you know, they don't have the overcrowding. So the, the six feet versus three feet, you know, they thought, oh, well, we can, we can maintain six feet because we'll just use this empty building. Or we already, as someone told me that some, the class sizes in one district were 12. <laughs> we, I don't think we have any school in Chesterfield County that has a class size of 12, maybe a CTE class, but that's just, you know, it is, it's, it's not comparing apples and apples because I know from having four kids in schools, we have a number of classes that are 30. Um, so it's, it, it's just, it's logistically they can make it happen. So it's, it's not that they support giving parents options and we don't. It's that our playbook looks very different. Also for what our 
criteria was when we were looking for some of the private school options. Admittedly, part of it was just finding an open spot for as late in the game as everything seems to be transpiring. One of the schools said right on their site, we will have no more than 10 kids in our room. Of course, referring to that was one of the most strict guidelines right out of the gate, not even for schools, just for society in general. So I said, hey, that is about as uh, um, social distancing uh, compliant as you possibly could get. So that sort of shelters that as much as possible. Um, But like you're saying, when you don't have the space, you don't have the space. No. um, If we did strict six feet in Chesterfield County Public Schools, um, that's basically eight children in a class. So 63,000 kids, eight children in a class. Normally you have 25 to 30 in a class. It just becomes a, you know, do the math. Like how, how do you get them back? Um, so again, then, then it's the three feet versus six feet and, um, and figuring, figuring out that whole puzzle. So that's the other thing is private schools don't have to, you know, private schools for the most part, uh, because they have more space, can just tell parents, yeah, we can do six feet, not a problem. We're going to rent tents, make it happen. Following up on the K through three, so if I'm reading between the lines, it sounds like the, the next school board meeting, the phased approach is going to be something that you're going to be looking at maybe even more closely, realizing maybe a lesson learned was that phase three going back to this drinking from a fire hose, I feel like is uh, is the uh, phrase that keeps coming to mind then maybe stepping back and doing that. So can we say that that probably will be more on the table for the next set of discussions? I can only speak for myself, right? That's how people often don't realize that we speak as a board. Um, so I can't speak for the board when we, the five of us agree to do something. Um, so all I can say is that I personally um, think that we should back up and f- figure out how to do phase two guidelines. We're in phase three. I would like to see us figure out um, phase two guidelines. Well, again, I am biased, of course, for the age of my child, but <laughs> I I would love for for that to be uh, part of the initial round of discussions. And, and I would also, well, say it this way, before everything really played out, I know in just discussions with colleagues of mine and so on, in all of our infinite wisdom, we said, well, could you keep the older kids virtual and then repurpose the middle schools and high schools for those lower grade kids so that you've got more space? And then, of course, as you get into the other phases, you sort of go backwards that way. So uh, that seemed like a great idea, at least to me. You know, with the caveat that, you know, people, I thought about that three months ago. then you have to triple your workforce, right? If you have a class of 30 and now you're going to switch to a class of 10, then instead of one teacher, you need three teachers. So it's, it's a little bit more complicated than you might imagine. Kind of revisiting a little bit of the teacher consideration. Uh, Is there any other concern as far as just teacher workforce and being available now and going forward, depending on what the decisions happen to be? I think that we can provide the leadership that will reassure our teachers to come back into the classroom. I do. I think it needs to be a slow and smart approach. And um, I think that we can do it. So I know that some people are 
hesitant, but I think it's, we just, we need to provide that reassurance. What role does the CEA play in all of this? I mean, I know they have public statements and I believe they had a presence at the meeting on the 20th. Is it really just recommendations? Is there any more weight to it than that? Just where do they fit? I think that they just, yeah, they're making recommendations. I think that it's become very political. Um, People have uh, implied that our decision was based on um, the CEA's recommendations. And the reality is, you know, we have teachers, we have other staff, we have parents, um, we do listen to all voices. And then, um, you know, then we figure out what's possible given, um, you know, sort of the limitations that we're working with. And I explained a number of those. I think the CEA reminds us that we we have to make sure that we are listening to our teachers. And again, what I mentioned from a trauma perspective, um, that this can't be top down. Um, that's the worst thing that you can do uh, when you have people that are still traumatized. Um, you have to to give teachers a sense of control and really involve them in the process. Um, I have a friend uh, who's kid receives uh, therapy services in person. And uh, they told me that they had talked to the kid's therapist and knew that the therapist was reluctant to come back to work and, and said, basically, you know, what, you know, how did you get there? Um, and they said, you know, knowing how critical these services are for our kids and being given control of the process, right? When people feel that they have a say when they're involved, um, then you know, it, it's very, it's very different, right? It's like as a parent, um, if I want to get my kids to eat vegetables, uh, do I give them a plate of peas and scream at them and say, you know, you can't have any dessert unless you eat all your peas, <laughs> or do I, you know, talk to them about the importance of of vegetables and making your body strong and say, Hey, you know, do you want to choose carrots or do you want to choose, you know, it's like giving them, allowing them to participate in the process. You you always get better outcomes. So we just have to make sure that we, that our teachers are a part of the process. I will say the one reason why that was top of mind based on some of my articles that I have read since the initial decision in the first presentation, the requirement was that the teachers were going to teach in empty classrooms. My understanding is that has now been shifted to them staying at home. What caused that change in the overall plan? Um, an uptick in resignations. So I mean, the reality, and I know what I, what I heard from teachers that reached out to me um, was that you can, if childcare is no longer available and uh, I learned in a county presentation um, that schools being closed counts as childcare no longer being available. Um, then under the, what is it that I can't remember, it's a federal act um, that you can take uh, what up to 10 weeks, I think it is, um, of pay at 80% rate um, and stay home and take care of your kids. Um, so right, we have to keep our workforce. So it was a, and people, you know, a lot of people shared their information and for some decisions like that, I'm going to say that our superintendent, that's their job, right? Like they're, they have run a school district. I have not, and I need to keep 
you know, I need to keep my teachers uh, in the fold and whatever he recommends, then that's what I'm going to support. So, and it, it was his recommendation um, that we offer that flexibility. And I think it's also important to point out that the governor did call for um, allowing um, flexibility. And to be honest, we, we, we need that. I mean, you know, my husband is working from home today uh, so that I can be here and uh, the reason he needed to do that is because my kid needed to get picked up from camp um, at the same time that I needed to be here. So it's allowing for that flexibility in difficult times allows us to participate more fully in our in our work. I'm going to ask this as a brand new parent to this whole world, going back to what you mentioned at the very beginning, that the participation now is more than it ever has been. And when I go on to the message boards and dare I say the Facebook pages, it gets pretty intense. Let's just leave it at that. Is there always a little bit of give and take or tension between parents' expectations and teacher performance and it's just amped up right now? Or is this brand new? I think that everybody is struggling right now. And when you're struggling, um, you are more likely to only see your side of the story. And so that's just what this is. Um, and that's from talking to so many parents. I mean, people are really, really struggling. And um, you can see one solution. And that solution is my kid needs to get back in school because I cannot cope. I have screamed at my child for the 10th time. And the only way the screaming is going to stop is if my kid is in school. That's, I really think that's where parents are. I know I've even seen comments where people will say, boy, if you don't trust us now, why will you trust us with your kid later? (laughs) I'm paraphrasing, but that's kind of the suggestion. And, you know, that's a compelling (laughs) statement to say, yeah, are we getting to the point where you can't take certain words back? I hate to say that. And and going back to even the government layers, like you tend to feel like this kind of stuff is reserved for the federal level and and maybe at the state level. But gosh, for it to really be like that at the local level feels foreign to me. And again, I don't and that's why I'm asking of like, is it maybe the give and take that's part of schools and I'm just new to the world or is it everything that's going on? And it sounds like it's everything that's going on. I'm somebody that has, you know, lived overseas, kind of traveled the world, um, been in many different situations, kind of entailed incredible resiliency. And I think maybe that's not the average American's experience. So I think for many parents, this is maybe the first time um, that they are experiencing such extreme hardship, right? Like this just is incredibly new to them. Um, and that's hard, right? Um, you know, it's, I was a midwife and really, you know, worked with moms who would have these really difficult birth experiences that, might have ended with a cesarean birth that was not what they wanted. And, you know, in communicating to me, you know, their kind of their story is that they 
in life, it had been very successful, right? Like they wanted to go to this college and they got into it and, you know, then they married the love of their life and they had, you know, then, then they wanted to have a child and they got pregnant easily. And then all of a sudden they had this crazy birth that was not planned for and uh, maybe had postpartum depression and unexpected events are really difficult. Um, and they're harder when you're not prepared. Um, and if you have never had an unexpected, like a really unexpected, a real shock, um, if you've never been faced with a real shock before, um, it's hard, right? I think it's hard. Everyone's just trying to do their best and they're short tempered and they're saying something quickly on Facebook and you say, you know, can you take things back? Um, I personally think that you can, like I, some people say to a fault that I give grace. And I just think right now, what we need to do is give everybody grace, like understand that, you know, sometimes I'll pick up the phone and someone will scream at me and I don't take offense. Um, I know that they might be where I am sometimes, right? Um, just wanting to smack my kid because I just cannot, you know, it takes everything in me to hold back and, and not spank my child because I know that really they're just, they're being a kid, and it's it's that I'm being asked to do the impossible, um, which is to do a job that I love and provide social interaction for my kid and make sure that you know, they're getting what they need from school. And it's just it's really hard. Oh, I will say not to not to belabor the point. You made me just think of, of something that I had thought of before our conversation. Uh, speaking of like child psychology and, and the socialization. Uh, we had a, an episode not that long ago talking about screen time. And uh, of course, I think everybody agrees screen time is not great. I, I joke about my oldest and it's like he's coming off of some sort of like drug bender when you take away an iPad, you know, when you need to get away for a few minutes and do your errands and all that kind of stuff. And I think this goes without saying, but of course, the other thing with virtual is that puts them in front of the screens. And what my guest for that episode she's a child psychologist had mentioned is also let's compare what us as adults are able to do so for example we're talking about like your facebook's and these things that are designed to suck up your attention and your time we can't get past them how in the world do we expect our kids to and and i'll be honest with you that's crossed my mind as well for the screens is like wow i've really tried hard (laughs) to, to keep the the screens away from the young ones especially and like man how long can we put them in front of? And then the other I mentioned, what are our expectations for what we as adults can do? I'll raise my hand and say, if I'm on one or two or three WebExes while I'm working remotely, if you quizzed me at the end and asked me what all went on in that meeting, you're going to get like 20, 25% back of what I was hearing and, and getting. So that definitely, I will say, is, is top of mind for me of what are we asking of our kids for these virtual models compared to what we would be able to do? And and when I look at it like that, it, that's something else that, of course, makes me nervous. Now, again, I, I well, I, I mean, I, I know I've been going to the K to the three, but as I mentioned, the reason why I do the adult comparisons, like, gosh, even for kids of all ages, that's that's a tough ask. 
Um, so I guess that's another one we're just going to figure out. And we probably don't disagree on that being a challenge, I would imagine. I know uh, a little known fact is uh, that I did not allow my now senior to have a cell phone until she was a sophomore. So I tend to be, you know, definitely a minority when it comes to uh, allowing screen time for my kids. Um, which I guess the hardest thing in this is, yeah, I, I went from being super strict to like, there just is no way that I can do my job sometimes. With, and my 17 year old is sometimes watching all my kids. Right. So, and that's hard. So I'll tell her, Cotty, um, they can, they can just watch, you know, if you, if, if you need to do it, just put them in front of a screen. Like I hate saying that. And this is again, like I said, someone who did not allow her eldest to have a cell phone until she was 15. And you know, you do what you have to do to get your work done. So I guess we chalk that up to one of many hard conversations that the pandemic has yeah. forced to have. One other question for the economics, and then we can get to my favorite part, the future looking and and being able to predict. Uh, As far as other staff that typically would be part of the school, so I'm thinking bus drivers, I'm thinking cafeteria workers, what are they doing during the virtual learning period? Um, So, you know, I guess I would, there's many reasons to argue that we need to get, start getting our kids back to school. And one of those reasons would be that I would like to support people uh, keeping their jobs. Um, so um, I would, yeah, I guess I'm going to answer that question by being optimistic that we are going to figure out phase two guidelines and uh, the virtual period, uh, at least for some of our kids, um, is going to be uh, a short period of time. Um and that because our community will support me in helping our incredible staff to keep their jobs. Uh, we're going to work on reducing the spread of COVID in Chesterfield. I, th- I think we do have to acknowledge that uh, we are now at, in one week, we went from 10.7 cases per 100,000 to 13.7 cases per 100,000. So that's a pretty quick uptick. Um, I don't think people realize that. And I I think that once we um, kind of explain um, the next school board meeting, we're, we're going to, you know, show the, the dashboard that we've kind of come up with and uh, it'll make it very easy for the general public to understand kind of what's going on with COVID in our county and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get us back. We're in orange. We'll get us back in yellow. We were in yellow. We can do the work. And then we don't even have to have the conversation about what, what are these people doing? And the short term, what they will be doing is some, some of the catch up work that never, never gets done when you're a very large district and not funded the way some of our other larger districts are funded. Uh, you know, things just don't get done. And this is a great chance to, you know, do the things that you never thought you'd get done. I'm even doing some of that, you know, because I am home during COVID, uh, all the back and forth of relaying kids different places. I do have a a little bit more time sometimes. Um, And so I've done some things that, you know, I've been saying I should do um, and just never got around to. So 
but that that only that only goes for so long. Now let me ask you this, and I will caveat it with uh, a lot of my day job is around data, and one other big talking point during the twentieth meeting was the survey that went around. I will say my experience was I did get the survey and said yes, I'm looking for face to face. Yes, I would do the bus if it was available, and so on. I feel comfortable with what I understand the risk to be for my five year old. The final presentation talked about how that Google form (laughs) made its way to non-Chesterfield parents, families, entities, and while 82% of respondents were in favor of face-to-face, it was not controlled enough to stay within the proper constituents that you're looking for the background on, Um, which, again, me being a data person and i know a Google form as soon as I open one and and also know they're pretty easy to share. Uh, It didn't surprise me from that standpoint. But where I'm going with that is in my world of data, the research and collection, well, I shouldn't say collection. The research is one thing. And and gosh, we could point to a bunch of different things nationally that we've seen that make an argument one way or the other in all the different studies and so on. The collection and interpretation um, can be something else. And that's the reason why I mentioned this survey, right? It's like, well, okay, who was in charge of deciding that it was going to be anonymous, but also something that could be easily shared and how it got distributed that the final result was something that got completely kicked out. And having those things in mind, is it just that you look at Virginia Department of Health and say, you know what, that that's all on you guys and whatever you have come out, we trust your interpretation and that's who you are, you're that body. Or is is there some other amount of the, the final report is only as good as the person that interprets it and the data collection? Again, we're not talking about a scientific uh, research for, for that survey, but – in my mind, again, from a data standpoint, it's like, oh boy, we're, we're saying this one research thing is invalid, but we're also saying that we're going to wait and we're going to put some other dashboard together that is, we're going to trust that it's more valid. What, what are your thoughts about that? Well, you know, yeah, I guess if uh, I have a fault, it's that I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I I expect people to maybe I expect that people, more people are thinking the way that I'm thinking. <laughs> and it was after I called, uh, you know, I was pushing VDH for this metric and pushing um, Chesterfield for, to develop a metric. And then I thought, wait a minute, like kind of what we talked about, you know, we know uh, that the risk of uh, being virtual is much greater for certain populations. What if the metric that you know VDH creates or that Chesterfield Counting creates does not take that into account? And I just thought, no, they would never do that because Harvard, you know, uh, Harvard figured it out, and they had this global think tank. And so, um, but then I thought, oh my, oh no, like what if that happens? And um, yeah, so I definitely called some people and said, I shared what Harvard had done and said, you know, just so you know, um, other areas are looking, you know, again, it's like mitigating risk. And we, we have our bias and I'm, I practice as a midwife and I made decisions that some people thought as very risky. Um, One of them, for example, was uh, considering a vaginal birth after two cesareans and you know 
one group of people might say, oh my gosh, like that's, you're crazy. And uh, I would say, have you looked at the literature on a third cesarean? Um, And so what if this is a mom that plans to have a number of kids and you know that if she has a vaginal birth with that in for the instead of having a third cesarean right she has a vaginal birth then when she has the next kid um her health outcomes are just phenomenal compared to you know what happens a third the fourth cesarean it's things get pretty ugly um and I remember one mom in particular. Uh, so that's all a part of the conversation, right? Like, do you plan to have more more kids uh, when you make that decision? And I remember one mom in particular, and she did. She had an amazing vaginal birth for her third child, and the physicians that she became pregnant uh, nine months later, and the physicians were kind of like, "Thank goodness she had a vaginal birth." And I said, "You." Exactly. Right. Like that was all going through my mind of, you know, there's so many different pieces to uh, whether you take something on that, you know, to one person might look risky, but to me, like I'm looking at the whole picture. Um, So I think that's why, you know, in my mind, I'm like, well, of course, VDH is going to look at the whole picture, of course. Um, And actually, I, I heard that VDH did just recently communicate to superintendents. Um, that we should be following phase guidelines. Um, so I think that that leads that leads me to believe that as they're creating the panel, that they're thinking about this. So um, now I have to, you know, hope that the same thing is happening in Chesterfield as well. That we're understanding that um, this is not just about the risk of getting COVID, but it's the risk of a child not learning to read. It's the risk of a, you know, if, to me, what's so compelling is a, a, a child who receives level two special education services. This could be the difference between them being verbal or nonverbal between walking or not walking. And that, you know, that's just like me thinking about the mom who is going to have a third or fourth or a fifth child and knowing that it's dangerous to have, um, that many cesareans so you know you just you you act differently given the entire picture yeah and actually in my very beginning intro talking about my experience and i think where we also um cross over in in agreement that when the american academy of pediatrics put out their first set of data and granted that became the calling card for a lot of parents that uh were looking for face-to-face um and in the guidance, I think from them even got a little more nuanced getting into what is the risk to reward for pre-K. And then they, they got into kindergarten and I think elementary and so on and so forth. And still, from my perspective, it's it's a pretty good nuanced assessment of what needs to be done. However, of course, going back to what we're talking about with guidelines versus requirements and regulations and so on, A, they are not one of those governing bodies. And B, there is a lot of mays or shoulds or things like that, that uh, each area has to figure out their best way to do those things. But that, of course, is where what you just described is exactly where my mind has been as far as risk to reward in particular, you know, for, for our age um, child. So uh, that, that totally makes sense. And one other quick anecdote around the data piece, 
where it's it's funny how whatever a person's perspective is is where they can go with it in my world pneumonia as a diagnosis right so as that continues to be somewhat i think accepted that before covid became as established as it, as it is there's a likelihood that pneumonia diagnoses early on was really covid and those aren't being counted would be the suggestion for the people that are more nervous i guess about what's going on on the other end you get people saying well you know what there could be pneumonia that is being coded as covid and you're overcounting those numbers and you're freaking out too much so just using that as a comparison again it's like man you can get into a whole lot of different things depending on interpretation and the collection of the data that just makes it very very tough and of course throw in with that that it is new. It is something that uh, people are continuing to learn. And maybe that'll get us a little bit into the future state, because one of the first ones that I think will have to be addressed also in the presentation was the fact that uh, kids are starting to be delinquent. Well, the parents, I guess, are being delinquent with vaccinations for their kids coming in. Uh, so how does that get dealt with? to make sure that everybody's on the same page. And then, of course, this will be a nice problem to have if and when, fingers crossed, we have a vaccine. Are there going to be people that say, I don't want this vaccine when it first comes out because I don't trust it yet? And what do you do then as far as guidance for who can still be in the school and who cannot? So in terms of getting kids up to date, you asked sort of what are we doing with some of our workers um, certainly some of our workers before we open, uh, there is an incredible backlog in um, making sure that all of these records are entered and kids are all up. So that's, that's hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of work. So that's, that's one thing that they're going to be doing um, so that everybody is up to date. Um, in terms of, I think we all know that, um, that when there is a vaccine, there are going to be a lot of people that are not going to rush out and get it. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to let our public health experts, right. Uh, figure that one out. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a kind of a, and little bit of a personal story, um, which is that, um, I actually, uh, have never vaccinated my kids for the flu. Um, because, uh, I had, tended to believe that them getting the flu was probably the best for their immune system. And when I listened to the, the briefing uh, that the white house did on opening schools, I noticed that Dr. Goza, uh, who's the head of the American Academy of Pediatrics, who I have a lot of respect for them. So I definitely listened to them said that uh, this year, all kids should get vaccinated for the flu. And I said to myself, okay, <laughs> you know what? I'm going to do it. You know, I have four kids. My eldest is 17. Not one of them has ever had a flu vaccine. And this fall, everyone is going to have a flu vaccine. So that's going to be my personal choice to make the the job of the nurses easier and make it less likely that a school will you know, be shut down because some people will think that it's COVID, but it's actually flu. Maybe it'll help with the triaging. Um, so I think part of it is 
public health will have to figure it out. And then, then we'll, they'll also have to communicate kind of the, um, the implications uh, of, you know, if you do this, then it, it can help. Um, we are less likely to experience school closures. Um, so I just thought I'd share that. that. That's personally what I'm willing to do as someone who has never done this uh, because I, I want to keep our schools open. So, and Dr. Samuel uh, made that recommendation as well. As someone who has a in-home doctor, <laughs> uh, yeah, we are pretty regimented on our flu shots, and uh, uh, we definitely get some looks uh, for our immediate family, let's say, for anybody su- that suggests otherwise. So, But it's a good point, of course, the other big national debate around masks, and you were alluding to differences even within our county when you go from one area to another, how much people are actually doing that. And of course, that's the other thing that makes all of this so sensitive is we're, well, here's one, for example, I am the kind of person that says, you know, a seatbelt requirement for my dependents, because I have to protect my dependents makes sense. Should I be saved from myself for having to wear a seatbelt? So I definitely fall into kind of a little bit of that libertarian like, don't try to save me from myself, other people and so on. And and that makes complete sense. But using the same comparison, of course, we can't use that same line because it's not just you. It's, it's like taking the idea of secondhand smoke and multiplying it by 10,000 or something like that, uh, where you do have to have those considerations for other people because it is everywhere. So that is what makes it very much nuanced. And at least from my standpoint of, yeah, family that always has the flu shots and so on, I appreciate, you know, what you're describing as assessing what your perspective is and what is right for your family, but then also considering, you know, kind of what presumably could be the greater good and, and, and where we all want to go kind of as a community. I mean, that's, that's really what it's all about. If I personally made a mistake in the beginning, um, I think I erred on the side of uh, assuming people would uh, do what's best for the common good and just wear a mask. And um, I very quickly saw that um, that wasn't, so, you know, maybe at first I didn't support a it's not that I didn't support a mask mandate, but in my idealistic world, I didn't want to have one because I just expected everybody to wear a mask, right? Um, I am idealistic to a fault. And it it became very clear that that was not happening. And so I thought, wow, we need a mask mandate. And I maybe I should have been more, like, less idealistic, but then that's not who I am. But I think my friends were like, Catherine, you expect people to do the right thing. And when are you going to learn? I kind of come from it in a little bit different direction of how much government mandate do I want in my life, quite frankly. And Maybe from a different motivation, but yeah, my mind is if I just have to wear a mask again to get my kids back into school, fine. If that's the worst thing I have to do, I'm good with that as a trade-off. Now, I don't really want to have to make it a mandate because generally speaking, I am a stay out of my business kind of guy. <laughs> um, however, it, it, that is that continued nuance that if others really can't do things that I perceive to be not a major inconvenience, 
then and it affects me maybe i have to reconsider what my overall stance is so yeah i've had a similar thought there but maybe a little bit of a different angle to where i got to some of that consideration well one other thing i have to ask about in recent days we've talked about the board of supervisors and kind of that give and take between the board in our local paper an article just came out that said the board of supervisors wrote a letter, I assume a public letter because it was in the paper to the board and said, we essentially own the school buildings. And if you guys aren't going to use them, I'm paraphrasing, then we're going to open them up to local childcare providers. I think the Y was the first entity that came up and allow them to use the space because they are going to have more kids that they can handle uh, to be able to do their social distancing and so on. Now, I know this is two different entities that are having to communicate in some way, but the optics don't look great to say, okay, the buildings aren't safe. We, we talked about the HVAC and there needing to be some updates to that. Presumably that hasn't been done, at least at this point. And we're also saying, okay, teachers for flexibility and for all the other things that we've talked about, um, you're going to be from home but we're going to put the kids into these buildings. And I did a little bit of research on what the childcare cost quotes are, and I'm hearing around 200 bucks. So essentially these kids are going to be sitting in the same seats that they otherwise would be from face-to-face instruction where otherwise their tax dollars would have been paying for that. And now they're paying $800 to watch a screen of their teacher who's at home with a childcare worker who, if I can say this, when we say compensation, probably even makes less than what the teacher does. The optics aren't great. Uh, Do you have any thoughts on that? Am I mischaracterizing that current situation? I think that uh, schools are uh, the experts when it comes to getting our kids back, right? Working very closely uh, with public health. And I think that um, the positive intent of the board of supervisors is that they they hear frustrated parents and they see this as a solution and they are our landlords so they can do that i am staying focused on getting our kids back to school that is my job uh i think that we can do it and um that's just yeah i don't i don't want to get distracted i just want to figure out how to implement phase 2 guidelines that's what i want to do and then you know we're going to need this we're going to need the schools and so i the agreement has not yet been reached and uh it won't work because we're going to need the schools so that's my comment on that and of course, I'll just say from my perspective, yeah, the, the optics are not great. And it, it definitely is a bit of an eye roller for the parents seeing how that has played out. So as you say, we will hope for uh, some expediency in whatever the next steps are from this current situation, at least anyway. Okay, now we can get into some of the future things. And here's the thought that I'll get us started with. Do you think that... What we're seeing with the pandemic and these updates is a change agent going forward, meaning that the updates that we're seeing or you're now having to deal with are brand new and wouldn't have been something you had to deal with if there was not a pandemic, or is it 
just accelerating the inevitable. And what comes to mind for me is let's talk higher education for a minute. I have said on this show before that something needs to change with colleges and universities and the amount of fluff, I think is probably what I would call it, that goes into colleges that's not necessary. And of course, anybody in my generation uh, talking about student debt, I think that's why it's fairly agreed upon uh, for higher education that their reckoning is coming. (laughs) It seems like it strikes me that maybe it's not quite as apparent, certainly in the public school system, because it's taxes that pay for it. So let's be honest. Human nature is if I'm not paying that money, I don't see it. It's just coming out of my taxes. I may not get quite as angry as that student debt that I have, but perhaps there are similar uh, changes that need to occur. Like you mentioned at the beginning that people were talking about a pandemic maybe happening. What do you, what do you think? Are these changes that were going to come anyway? It just, they, now they have to come sooner. Um, so I think all five of the school board members kind of ran on a back to the basics uh, campaign. That actually was my slogan. Um, but it's kind of a similar mantra of, Uh, You know, we need to fix our HVAC systems. We need to uh, give our teachers a raise, like kind of do the basics, right? Um, And I think COVID has shown a light on just how important those basics are. Uh, I think our teachers are really upset because, you know, we never took care of decompression and they're underpaid. And um, there's a delay in getting kids back to school because um, we have a, you know, HVAC systems that, you know, need to be updated. So, um, it makes it, yeah, it it shines a light on just how important it is to like do the basics first. So, um, and I'm, I'm excited about that. Like I, I, I'm, I'm thrilled that our HVAC systems are going to get updated and there, there will be an update at the August 11th school board meeting. Um, great stuff happening. And yeah, I just am, I probably get, get way too excited about having, good filters and HVAC systems, but that, that stuff is important. There's actually research that connects indoor air quality, uh, to absenteeism. So it's like, it's, it's just, it's good stuff. I'll use myself again as the example of making the switch to private school, at least for this year to get the face to face two questions. Has there been a noticeable amount of families that have opted for that option? And, do you think that that's going to have any long-term effects in the next year, one year, two year, three years? I think that uh, a number of families are still waiting and hoping. Um, so I would, to anybody listening, just just say, hang in there. Like, I really, I think we can figure this out. And it's important that we figure this out because I'm such a strong believer in public schools. Um, so I definitely, I hear the rumblings, um, but I also, I think the majority are willing to wait a little bit longer. Um, they're, they're getting close to throwing in the towel, but not yet. And this is our chance to, to show them that we we've got this. And do you have now even just kind of going away from our situation here nationally, when you hear things about the learning pods or the micro schools and all of that, do you think that those will take hold for the long term? Are those 
kind of fads because people are trying to figure out the here and now. I think um, that those are fads because people are trying to figure out the here and now. Yeah, exactly. I think that what could change is um, a better understanding that we are reliant on our neighbors, right? That we need. Um, I've always thought uh, I'm biased since I have four kids, right? That I can't raise my kids without help. And so I, I think this kind of scrambling um, and trying to figure things out while we are virtual, uh, that there will be a lasting effect um, to that, that there will be stronger relationships built between neighbors. Uh, I really see that as being the outcome. One other thing I have to ask you too, when all of this was first going on, I have frankly been nervous that we, we just wouldn't find our footing for so long into the school year that the suggestion would maybe end up being like, you know what, this school year is for not, and we're just going to restart again, you know, in the following year. Is there, and that's, to be honest, that's like my doomsday scenario. How unfounded is my doomsday scenario? I think it is very unfounded, at least in our district, because you have a school board that is willing to put in the crazy hours to, to figure this out. Um, and it's interesting because someone had said, um, after I voted that this was a vote for virtual for the year. And I think I said over my dead body and it's just, uh, that I will do everything in my power. Um, and that's why I think that this upcoming school board meeting is so important. I think that we have to show the public some forward movement. I think that's critical so that we don't get stuck. Forward movement, uh, uh, yeah, is definitely the key. Well, I think that is all of the questions that I had. I appreciate the the time that you spent with me. And as we mentioned, the next meeting is on August the 11th. So it sounds like that's when the public will get our next update. Is there anything that we missed that you think is worth mentioning, again, nationally speaking, or or even to Chesterfield County? I should point out, since maybe I dinged the state a little bit, that they were probably waiting on better guidance from the federal level, right? And uh, if they didn't create the dashboard right away, uh, they probably had a deep understanding that really um, COVID is best tackled at the national level. Um, So... I think if there had been more of a coordinated campaign at the national level, um, we might, uh, I think someone even did a study that like countries that talked about mask wearing earlier, uh, kicked COVID faster. So there was a little bit of a, a lag. Now you're going to take me down a different rabbit hole here. Cause you know, one of the things I was going to mention going back to the, the ship part, my perspective being a sort of, again, stay out of my business government kind of guy. I, I Every level up, I almost think of it being a bigger ship that takes even longer to move and even longer to move. So while I get, you know, having the support from the state, because there's, there's, there's the dollars aspect of it, I would imagine, of just who's got the funding, who's got the expertise. But, oh my gosh, everything takes so long yeah. to, to get anything there. So I guess I would almost be nervous about the amount of interaction from those higher levels of government just because of, I guess, what we've kind of seen. Nobody was really moving on it. It did keep getting pushed down, which means nothing was happening. And and, and what would it take for the different localities to actually get the right amount of movement and the right amount of support from the state and federal levels? 
Well, I guess if all the localities start, I think, kind of doing what Chesterfield is doing, which is like understanding like the practical things that we need um, and sending that message to the state. Um, and I feel like we're doing that in Chesterfield now. Um, and then the state uh, kicking it up to the federal when they need to, for example, um, sending the message that they, in terms of like, um, like testing requirements, right? Like standardized testing, like, please just give us a waiver for the next two years because um, this is what it looks like. And we have these learning gaps. And so we need your help um, in waiving those uh, requirements. Um, and then the, the testing, right? That county governments need to have access to this 15 minute test. So all state employees need to be able to do a 15 minute test so that we can have effective government. Um, and that, that's probably a national strategy, right? Like um, that at the federal level, they decide to support this and, um, and we have access to faster testing because that does seem at the end of the day, the, the testing lag is probably our biggest problem. Felt like for a little while we weren't hearing about the lack of, not the lack of testing, but the, well, the lack of available tests. And all of a sudden that seems to be on the headlines again. So it's a carousel that I'm ready to get off of <laughs> as far as the news cycle is concerned. And that is federal because that's really ultimately that's FDA and, um, you know, what tests are being um, approved. You know, I read a po- or listened to a podcast uh, on This Week in Virology and uh, this guy, you know, that's not my area, but this guy who just really sounded like he knew what he was talking about said that there's kind of been a bias in the U.S. towards sort of the the gold standard tests um, that take longer and are more expensive, but then we then they're not available, right? And um, his recommendation is that we make the 15-minute tests widely available, that maybe they're a little... Um, less sensitive, but if you use, if you do them a couple times, then you're going to, you're going to have the same result. Um, So maybe we need to shift our bias towards this, making these fast tests available and that are cheaper and away from the, the, the test that is now considered the gold standard. Like if we want to get our kids back, we're going to have to kind of change how we think about testing. I would encourage anybody who is a nerd like me to listen. I forget what episode it was. Um, but it was it, this week in virology. I feel like it was episode 600, something 640s and it's about rapid testing. So it's a good listen. Well, I will uh, try to look it up and put it in our show notes. Again, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk through this. It is a lot to unpack. It is such a sensitive topic, of course, as we have reiterated. Uh, you're welcome to come back at any time, uh, whether that's a quick touch base for the August 11th meeting or beyond. I'd love to, to continue the conversation. And I think uh, it's good for folks to hear uh, as much information as they can, uh, especially right now when not only are we at home a lot, yes. <laughs> it, uh, it, you, you tend to have your own echoes and uh, it, it, it makes sense to challenge yourself. So I appreciate it and we will be in touch. Thanks so much. It's been a lot of fun. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get podcasts. If you'd like to be notified of future weekly episodes, please hit the subscribe button. 
If you'd like to help us even further, visit suburbanfolk.com and you'll find a donate button where all the money goes back into the show for you. Thanks for listening. Suburban Folk is part of the Pod All the Time podcasting network with 12 other great podcasts. Head over to suburbanfolk.com for links to their shows. We're also part of the Ring Media Network. Go to ringmedia.com to learn more. That's R-R-I-N-G media.com.